ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're fired. No, wait, you're rehired. Yes, this week on Download This Show, we are wading into one of the most tumultuous weeks in the world of technology. Uh, OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, has reinstated their CEO, Sam Altman, after firing him just four days ago. So how did it happen? Why did it happen? And where do we go from here? All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And a big welcome to our guest this week, social media strategist, who actually is quite critical of social media, Vic Coffee. Welcome back. Hello. And the co-founder of Patient Notes, Sarah Moran. Welcome back. Oh, so good to be here. Thank you. Right. So it has been the most famous, the most talked about piece of AI technology in the last couple of years. And it seems inside the world of OpenAI, the home of ChatGPT, has been a bit of a bin fire. Meg, walk me through what's happened in the last couple of weeks at the top of OpenAI. The kids have been fighting. <laughs> they, they, they're not getting along. They, they really don't like each other. And it has captivated the world. The amount of episodes of Succession or, or the movies, The Social Network, that could have been written. The tech journalists did not get any sleep in the lead up to Thanksgiving. That was for sure. So what happened? Well, Sam was out and then he was in and then he was out and then he was in. So Sam Altman, who is the CEO, co-founder of OpenAI, he, he is the main man, right? But whilst he is the main man, he is beholden to a board. And over a weekend or a Friday night, the board kind of said, well, we don't really like you anymore, so we're going to get rid of you. And so they ousted him. But the problem is, is the board wasn't really a good board. They were not really like understanding governance and they weren't really a powerful board and a smart board. And so they didn't really go about it the best way is the simplest way for me to explain it. And so then there was this tussling and Sam has some really good friends, one of them being Greg Brockman, I think is his last name. Greg's the main guy. And Greg was like, well, if Sam's out, I'm out. And then it started this tussle. And then Microsoft stepped in because Microsoft has invested a lot of money. And the problem is, is when they got rid of Sam, they forgot to tell Microsoft. <laughs> it's kind of bad, right? Like you, you tell your number one investor things and they forgot to tell him. What's happening underneath the hood? Like the, the, enough time has passed that we kind of get a sense of it. So what's actually going on? What happened to precipitate these moves? So... You need to understand a little bit about the structure of OpenAI itself. It is a little bit confusing in its structure in that there are some companies and there are some nonprofits, and they all sort of own each other and sit on each other's boards. So that in itself is quite complicated. But the overarching goal is to pursue what's called artificial general intelligence. And that is, you know, the North Star of OpenAI. And it's quite become quite public as to why Sam Altman was fired. And they were essentially saying that he was hiding stuff from the board. Now, what was he hiding has been the question that has kept us all awake. And although it's not been exactly confirmed, it is about this concept of Q-star. We, we've been talking about how the dramatic leaps that OpenAI has been able to make. Like, you, you can't understand just how far this tech has come so, so quickly. And Q-star is this idea that we're getting really close to, you know, what is that sort of artificial general intelligence? And, and that this needs to be 
disclosed to the board so that they can make accurate decisions about the future of OpenAI. What most people know about OpenAI, if you've used ChatGPT, is that up until now, the way that the large language models work is that there is a statistical way of predicting what is the next word that may come next. And so that is, you know, where where OpenAI is good is that kind of maths, the stats, like the chances are the next word you want is going to be blah. Uh, Where this changes with QSTAR is that it's actually conquering the ability to do math, like real math. And that is going to accelerate things quite dramatically. And then there's the the question about, well, what does that mean? And what are the implications? And how could that be applied? And is that dangerous? And this is where the TIFFs start to kick off because uh, you have a number of different camps, particularly in San Francisco, about the future of technology. And is it that you just add fuel to the fire, see where it goes, let's see where this is going to end up? Or do you make conscious decisions about planning what it is we're going to do with this general intelligence once it's created? In the days after all this happened, there were reports that several staff researchers had written to the board warning of a, a powerful discovery that it is said, and this is three degrees of hearsay, could threaten humanity. Is that what we're talking about? Is, is that where the this, this development falls in or could that be something else that remains uh, unknown and like deeply dystopian in nature? That is definitely, you know, that unknown thing is always the question. And, you know, we weren't in the board meetings. We don't know what the letters were. We, we're not there. But that's the implication. So the, the the fallout has been that actually OpenAI are sitting on something that really could draw massive uh, implications for our future. And, you know, maybe that's something they should tell their board about when they're having these meetings and when they're planning these things. And so you're right, this dystopian future is up for grabs, but it always has been really, right? Like that has always been a risk. Um, and now it's becoming closer. People are like, we, we need to start making calls and making decisions about that. Oh, see, as I said, the kids aren't getting along. <laughs> <laughs> right. right? So, so, so Meg, the, Sam is, is let go. Very, yep. uh, and then becomes quite public. Then uh, a few key leadership people like Greg, as we mentioned, they also go. What happens next? Because there's been a lot, since that initial firing, a lot has transpired. Well, yeah. Well, look, OpenAI is a very important company, right? Uh, we, we can't discount that, whether it's the nonprofit side or the for-profit side. And there is, you know, th- there's a lot of debate. Is it this QSTAR development? Is it what is this thing that, that Sam isn't communicating to the board? Some people go, it's the fact that he wants to make profit. It could simply be that. OpenAI is, is, is important to the world. And as I said, you know, earlier, Microsoft stepped in. They've invested a lot of money. So Microsoft, over this whole chaotic weekend steps in and goes, well, hey, wait a second. How about you guys come work for us? And there was this weirdly worded statement about how we're excited for the next chapter with Sam. But so this was all done. And so Sam all of a sudden is working and OpenAI is now at Microsoft, right? Hmm. But then within like 12 hours, it's not. And Sam is back as the, the the CEO of OpenAI, because all of the employees, I mean, this is this is the kind of founder and CEO you want to be. Everybody has threatened to quit if Sam's not the boss. Yeah. Oh, and and don't forget, in between all of this, there was an interim CEO, right? Some guy named Emmett Shear, who was like a co-founder of Twitch. So in the span of something like a weekend, OpenAI has four CEOs. 
right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, it's absolutely wild what happens. I think, you know, Microsoft, Nadella, he gets he gets a lot of credit for, for the masterful strokes in this. Because again, OpenAI is an extremely important company, and, and it's not something that can just be left to sort of fall over. And when I talked about the board and that they're an inexperienced board, they, they really are. They didn't have a lot of experience in tech or in board and understanding governance. And I think what we will see out of this is a much stronger company, and maybe it is best, I don't want to say it's good that this happened, but it's good that all of this chaos happened now, and there is some structure to this company than, you know, 12 months down the line after they've discovered something dangerous. That drama is likely to unfold in sort of granular ways over the coming weeks, but let's take a step back, right? So one of the reasons why we're talking about it is because ChatGPT is quite simply the most culturally impactful AI of the last year or so. It's the one that most people have interacted with, and, you know, I think it's, for many people, it'll be their first experience of, you know, what AI can do. We know that AI has been around, uh, it's often used on us, but it's one of the first sort of consumer facing things that lots of people have interacted with and really have come to understand its power. When dramas like this unfold, it has an effect on how users and how investors and other companies in the space behave. Now, Sarah, you're, you work in, in the AI space. Have you sensed uh, people that work in other tech startups changing behavior in light of what's happened with OpenAI? It's quite interesting. So I've been looking, well, my team and I have been looking at what has been the impact on the tech itself. So, for example, there was an outage last week. We've um, we've seen high lag times on a, on a lot of the, the calls to the API, which has just sort of been happening, which it has not happened before. So even the tech itself is a little bit... I mean, I won't say unstable, but there has been instability within that. So, you know, running mission-critical workflows on OpenAI's APIs at the moment is a bit of a crazy idea. But as you say, it's also been the most accessible one. So... um, what I mean by that is if you're a, if you're looking to build a startup, you basically you buy access to the API, you plug in and away you go. I mean that's that's oversimplifying it, but it means that there's a lot of startups who are starting to build on these platforms. And then the fact that they're kind of on shaky ground themselves really calls into question, like, should you be doing that as a business? But yeah, that that uncertainty around what what you should and shouldn't be doing is definitely a conversation that we're having. And the way people are covering for that, at least I hope they're covering for it in this way, is to basically use a bit of everyone's tech, right? So so use a little bit from Amazon, use a little bit from Meta, use a little bit from Google, and use a little bit from OpenAI and weave them together in such a way that you're creating that stability yourself in, in your organization. Meg, have you seen a change in people's attitude and behavior in the, the tech scene in response to OpenAI? I think one of the biggest things is the fact that Microsoft is their biggest investor and all of this went down on Google Meet. (laughs) (laughs) Right? That is the biggest, funniest thing. Look, it's... <laughs> that's the biggest funny thing? <laughs> well, no, I mean, No, that's to the me, nerdiest thing. No, it is, is the nerdiest thing. No, it's, I think it's hilarious. There's, there has been a shift. And I think, you know, I, I think what Sarah just said about diversifying is, is really important. But it's what we've said for the beginning of time. You know, you're always on rented land in a lot of this stuff. Like in social media, if you're building your entire community on a social media platform, that's on rented land. That's not on your own. So you're beholden to them. It can be taken away from you at any time, right? So if you're building your, you know, startup on OpenAI's API, well, then that you're beholden to them. So by diversifying where you're relying on things, that's that's just smart business in today's world. 
Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. Our guest this week, Meg Coffey, social media strategist and the co-founder of Patient Notes, Sarah Moran. Mark Fennell is my name. And now we're talking about Tesla. Interesting legal cases unfolded overseas where the question has arisen, did Tesla know that there were defects in their self-driving technology and still let people drive anyway? Sarah, what's happened? Well, uh, in the States at the moment, there's a, an active case where a judge has found that there is reasonable evidence that Elon Musk and other people uh, at the company uh, knew that the self-driving technology was defective, but they still allowed people to drive them anyway, and so that they didn't disclose to customers that there, there was potentially an issue with their self-driving technology. So this is, you know, the, f- the first time this has actually come out, and they're saying that Tesla engaged in a marketing strategy that painted the product as autonomous when, in fact, the company knew that that wasn't the case, that, 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 that there are issues, there, there are bugs. It's had a significant effect on the belief about the capabilities of the products in the eyes of consumers. So that's, that's where we're at. It's, so the question uh, comes up, you know, is a car actually driving itself um, and what are the limits to that technology and what are some of the other lawsuits that, that may be uh, coming afterwards? Do you get the sense, Meg, that uh, there's a lot of jurisdictions around the world that are just waiting to see how it shakes out in a few different cities and a few different countries legally to kind of provide us a roadmap, pun unintended, provide us a roadmap <laughs> for how to legislate? Because it, I, I will confess a part of me thought we would be further along with self-driving cars by this point. Given the technology has been sort of in development for, you know, 15, 20 years, I was sort of expecting by this point that there'd be more of them on the roads and it feels like it's encountered enough legal and I guess you would say cultural pushback that it hasn't really developed. Do you think that there are countries and cities that are just sort of waiting to see what happens in a few test markets? Yeah, definitely. I think you, with any type of legislation, you know, you just, you need a couple test cases to get something through. You want to see how it goes. Um, and then the floodgates will be open. And I wonder how much of the pushback recently on a lot of this Tesla stuff is a hatred of Elon. And, and I'm being serious when I say that, like, is his personal brand starting to impact w- the way we feel about certain things, like the way that we feel about autonomous driving, the way that we feel about the Tesla car, the Tesla brand. Now, back to the lawsuit and, and, and your question. Yes, I think that, you know, should we be further along? <sighs> Possibly, but I think that, you know, it is... there. We, we, humans are litigious by nature. Americans are extremely litigious. If there's a way that they can control something, they're, 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 they're going to. And so I think that they're going to be uber uber careful about this one before they just let completely the machines take over. Right. What do you think, Sarah? Well, I've driven Teslas, uh, many of them, and I think actually the gap is, like, I I like the autopilot-ish features, but I don't need a car to drive itself. Um, I, I think we come so close to it with, um, you know, all the whiz-bang lane keeping and, you know, all of the things that yeah. are close to autopilot. Like, I'm satisfied. I, I think that the the jump to being full op- autopilot and the, the risk that a company would take on to do that, the, you know, the, the mind change that you would need in a consumer to say, just let the car drive itself. Oh. Um, that's such a jump. And 
I, I, I think most people, uh, the luxury of having um, a lot of the features that are autopilot close um, is good enough. And I, at least in Australian consumers anyway, when, when I do jump it, you know, if I do jump in an electric car and I show people how that works, people are like, wow, this is so much better than, than what we've had in the past. I'm, I'm really satisfied with that. So I do wonder if that lag, so you're talking about that, you know, 15-year uptake, in part is that consumers aren't knocking down the door saying, hurry up and give me my autopilot car. Like, we're just we're just not doing that. Well, yeah. Like, so, like, my car can parallel park itself and, like, find a parking space and do all those kinds of things itself, right? I don't need it to do that. I don't let it do that. I'm good at parallel parking. I can, I can do it on a two-point turn, right? So, and I don't trust it. I don't want to, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not there. Maybe I'm old, right? I'm not ready to trust the machines. Um, I know that I'm better than the machines at this stage, but maybe, you know, the younger generations are ready for it. I don't know. I like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy with what we have. I'm not ready to let my car completely drive itself. I mean, see, cruise I'm, on the other, I'm on the other end of the spectrum and I've driven it with my partner. I'm happy to let it park. I'm happy to let it do all the things. My partner freaks out when it happens because it does it so much more quickly and not in a very human-like way. Um, and I think that that's probably the difference. But even though I, even though you can, doesn't mean you should. And I'll be honest, <laughs> half the time I just forget to turn it on. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I, I, I do wonder. I mean, it's it's um, it is interesting, though, to have a company that – uh, perpetuates the myth that this can be delivered and then to have a judge find that, hey, that's actually not true. So to your point, uh, what does that do for trust about the brand and trust in electric vehicles? I, I don't appreciate the damage that that, that that actually causes. I guess there's something to be said about the fact that both the two of you are, you know, people that engage with very high-level technology a lot of the time. And I, and, and I think part of what I wonder about this is actually – there's going to be a very long period of time where people, again, culturally, socially adjust to the idea of the technology and only that can be built on a pretty thick layer of trust and convenience, right? You know, the thing that normally makes us sign up to technology is just like convenience, right? It's it's like, oh, it's it's so much easier to just pay for everything on my phone now than it is to walk around with a wallet. It's that kind of territory, right? And I just think that you, you can't even begin to shift that culture and I'm not, by the way, suggesting that you should, ne- it, it is a fait accompli, and we should, by the way, but you have to build that on top of a very wide, a wide base of trust and convenience. And I, I feel like that is quite a far way away. But tell me if you think I'm wrong, Meg. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it as we're, ch- we're chatting. Like, I love driving. I love going for road trips. I thoroughly enjoy driving. I'm not ready to give that up. And so then I was like, okay, autonomous cars. But then if you're just going to get into autonomous cars, then just get taxis, right? Like if you're going to get to the point where you're not, for, I mean, for me, then I, if, I, I would just get taxis if I'm in a place where I'm not needing a car or I'm not driving. But back to the autonomous car. But again, like in a city like San Francisco, I think I would probably be okay with that in a, in a, I would be okay in, in in a city like San Francisco taking a car, an autonomous car. Um, I don't know. The trust, though, back to what Sarah said, I'm not okay with, with you know, false advertising. I, I don't think it's good that, that Tesla is out there saying one thing and it's, and it's not the, the truth. I think that when, when things like that happen, it puts us back so many years and it, and it, and it is harmful to technology. Um, 
I think yeah. it's interesting what you said about San Francisco specifically. And I think uh, there are cities I would be happy in an autonomous vehicle in, but that's because there's probably a lot of autonomous vehicles. And I think think about the times when I've used those auto features and it's been a long drive from Melbourne to Byron Bay doing the big road trip and you're driving for long stretches at a time um, and you know, I, so I drove from Melbourne to Byron without the auto features and Byron to Melbourne with the auto features. So I could really compare the difference in experience. And I thought it would make jack all difference, but actually um, I found I was less fatigued. There was a lot of, it was, once I got used to it, I found it was a much more delightful um, experience. And I think that that is where things make a difference is I'm happy to go on the open road and, and help me do those uh, like long stretches. But in a city, I want all the other... Like, I think we thought that autonomous vehicles meant they'd all be autonomous. Like, once, you know, the Jetsons, picturing all of those, you know, um, Mm. all of the vehicles going around in a grid and they all know where each other is. Whereas I think at the moment it feels so independent. Like, my car's autonomous, but yours isn't. So if you do something really stupid that we haven't programmed the AI to do, like, even think about kangaroos. How many kangaroos (sighs) jumping out of the road has has this been tested on? So I think we have all of that doubt. Um, until we have a critical mass where actually if all the cars are autonomous, they can talk to each other. And, and that's what I envisioned uh, that would look like in the future. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And it was one of the stranger websites online where you could basically roulette talking to people. It was called Omegle. Does anyone remember Omegle out of curiosity? I never used it. I never um, used it. Well, you're probably not going to do it anytime soon. So the way it would work is uh, you'd open it up and it's basically like playing Russian roulette with the internet and, and webcams. You'd click through and you'd get surprise new person, surprise new person, and hope to God that they were wearing clothes, which often didn't happen. But <laughs> it has been taken offline in a lawsuit. Why though, Meg? Uh, because it should have been. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, look, so um, Omega was one of those sites that has sort of been, it was one of the fringe sites. It was not something that I ever used. I'm aware of it simply by nature of what my job is, and I've had to talk about it. Um, and it was a place that uh, was actually really prevalent uh, uh, among some of the younger children because it was a place that you could go and um, just meet random strangers, right? And And sometimes when you're a kid, that's exciting, and that's kind of how it was originally sort of built. It was this place that you could go and just meet anyone across the world. Um, and, you know, the optimism in, or optimist in me is saying that, oh, cool, I can go meet anyone across the world. I can have pen pals and I can make interesting friends. Well, that's not the case. And what it turned out to be was a bunch of pedophiles and mean, evil people. So basically what happened was there was this woman in the U.K. who— um, very long story short, brought brought a lawsuit against Omegle that said, you know, she was groomed through the platform and— she had wanted to do it through corp. She hadn't when she brought the lawsuit. She hadn't intended for for the the site to be shut down, but that was the end result. And as she said, she couldn't have asked for a better thing because this site is wasn't a good site. And the way that it was connecting people, and the way that it because it didn't have the filters, it didn't have the the moderation that the the shall we say in air quotes, traditional sites had, um, there was no way to protect people. So there were over 220 images and videos of Alice from the age of 11 carrying out sex acts under the duress of someone on the site. And this is what the, the legal case is about. It's this idea that there were 
you know, many, many children being exploited uh, on the site. Uh, and, and this particular abuser had done the same thing to five other girls. So meeting them and grooming them um, all, all on the site. And so these people had become very skilled at doing that and the site was exposed for for doing all of these horrible things. And that's that's a big reason why it was shut down. How did this thing manage to run as long as it did, Meg? Look, I think that, you know, with any of these social ma- social platforms, they do run unregulated until uh, enough people scream and shout, you know, until enough people bring suits against them, until enough people um, bring them in front of regulators and say there is a problem and we need to do something about this. You know, that is, I think, the the greatness of the Internet, the power of the Internet is that everybody has access to it. Anybody can start a website. Anybody can start a community, um, which is wonderful. But it is also that horrible negative side of it because it gives people a megaphone in a way that they've they've never had before. So this website was a place that, you know, a lot of people went and visited. It was able to continue because people were continuing to visit. So it wasn't until enough people screamed and chatted and said, hey, this is a really bad thing. I mean, that's how I learned about it. I didn't learn about Omegle because it was a good place. I learned about it because parents were coming to me going, have you heard about this? My kids are on this and I think it's a bad thing. So that's how I learned about it. Enough people were screaming and shouting. See, that's really interesting because I I remember when Omegle launched. It was in 2009, I think, and it it was one of those early internet weird things, right? You'd just get on and talk to strangers. And I, to be honest with you, I was surprised that it was still going. It It felt like a relic from a different era. But then apparently, this is according to the BBC, it became quite enormously popular during the pandemic because people would use it to just talk to randoms. It was basically like webcam roulette. But what I was surprised about, and I guess, well, maybe not surprised in retrospect, is the sheer number of child exploitation cases that it popped up in, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, this has happened since, I mean, I remember this happening on ICQ. So that was what I was using in the early 90s, that, you know, once you match strangers with strangers and you create a site that is built to do that, that stuff is is going to happen. It's it's almost just you know that that is guaranteed. That is ha- yeah, exactly. What surprises me though, so when we ask the question about why wasn't it shut down, I really have questions about the location of the company. So it was in Vermont, so it's in the U.S., and I'm really struggling to understand how U.S. law doesn't address uh, you know some of the many instances that that were known um, since you know since 2009 that that the that these sorts of things would happen. Whereas in Australia, we've really gone to great lengths to really think about, well, what do users on the site, you know, on websites need to be able to do? We have the eSafety Commissioner. We have quite strong restrictions and even just cultural uh, restrictions about what young people can do online or should do online. And we have a lot of education to young people about how to engage or not engage with strangers on the internet. So I was really shocked that it was in the US. Um, the other thing, just contextually, is that this was created by a child. So it was created by an 18-year-old in 2009. Um, and I think, you know, there is this desire that young people have to connect with other people and to explore the world, and whether that be their friends or whether that be someone else, um, that desire doesn't go away. But the environments need to be safe and they, they need, you know, we have um, most 
social media, actually you'd be able to speak to this probably a bit better than I can, Meg, but most social media platforms do have restrictions that you need to be 13 to be able to use them. But this one didn't. And so I'm really confused how they were able to skirt a lot of the laws that other social media platforms had to abide by in order to be able to provide service without being cut up. I'm just really confused how it was able to go on for so long and as long as it did. The other thing just briefly to mention is that popularity around the pandemic, I saw it take off on other platforms. So what people would do was they would record their screen, so record your Omegle, and so you've got, oh, I'm going to go meet a heap of strangers and I'm going to record that and then recreate that as content. So putting it on YouTube, putting it on TikTok. And so, you know, you might have someone, oh, I'm going to randomly play a song to a stranger and see how they react. So it really um, came at a time where there was reaction videos and people were looking for connection during the pandemic. But unfortunately, at the same time, the the pedophiles didn't go away from, from that website. And with that, we are, in fact, out of time. Huge thank you to our guest this week, uh, Meg Coffey, social media strategist, who has a a critical eye, let's say, on social media. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. And Sarah Moran, co-founder of Patient Notes. Thank you so much for joining us on Download This Show. Always fun to be here. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.